The prophets have long fascinated people for their stinging criticisms of society, their defense of the vulnerable, and their visions of the future. But where did their books come from? Our understanding of the role of writing in semi-literate cultures, our knowledge of the creation and editing of literature in the ancient Near East, and evidence of records of prophets' words among Israel's neighbors, have all grown significantly in recent years. This chapter will make clear how applying these gains in knowledge to the prophetic books is changing the way scholarship views them. At first blush, the strategy for reading a biblical prophetic book seems intuitive. You follow the logic of the prophet's words, much as you would follow any speech, looking for the key points of the rhetoric. And in fact, some passages read like highly developed oratory. For instance, Isaiah chapter 40 verses 12 to 31 mounts a sustained challenge to a group whose estimation of their God is implied to be deficient. Verse 12 speaks of Israel's God as a colossus who dwarfs his creation. Verses 13 to 14 describe him as beyond human instruction, and verses 15 to 17 measure him against the nations, who are paltry by comparison. The prophet then voices the question, To whom, then, will you liken God? Verse 18. He adduces idols for comparison, deconstructing them as nothing more than human confections of wood and metal. Verses 19 to 20. He summons his audience to recall what they already know. The Lord dominates his domain, bringing human rulers to naught. Verses 21 to 24. And then the question recurs, To whom, then, will you compare me, or who is my equal? Verse 25, with the speaker immediately denying comparison to the stars. Verse 26, in this light, how dare Jacob's children, Israel, question whether their ever-attendant, inexhaustible God has lost sight of them? Verses 27 to 31. Such oratory means to revive confidence in the Lord by replacing defeatism and weariness with strength, to mount up with wings like eagles. But most of the material found in the prophetic books doesn't read as smoothly as Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 1 is more representative, in that it seems disjointed and hard to follow. After verses 2 to 3 complain that the people's rebellion against the Lord shows them lacking the sense of brute beasts, verse 4 upbraids them for turning from the Lord, while verses 5 to 6 address them as masochists inviting further beatings, despite having a collective body already battered and bloodied. After verses 7 to 8 make this imagery concrete by describing Judah as savagely destroyed and Jerusalem bereft of its satellite cities, the speaker laments, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Verse 9. But then he pivots quickly, using Sodom and Gomorrah with a different tone. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Verse 10. The implied comparison is no longer, we were nearly annihilated like Sodom and Gomorrah, but you and your rulers are as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. 
This wickedness is defined in terms of worship, with the Lord rejecting the people's sacrifices, owing to their entanglement with evil, from which they can free themselves if they seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Verse 17. The Lord then calls them to a dialogue with Himself that would result in their eating the good of the land. But if they remain rebellious, they will be eaten by the sword. Verses 18 to 20. Surprisingly, verses 21 to 26 state that such judgment will not annihilate them, but will restore the city to its former righteousness. Verses 27 to 28 forecast that Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But its rebels and sinners will be destroyed. Such sinners delight in oaks and gardens, verse 29, apparently a form of illicit worship, and their fate will be, ironically, to become like a dead oak or a withered garden, verses 30 to 31.